0: Welcome to the Bagwell Center podcast. This podcast features lectures and symposia hosted by the Bagwell Center for the Study of Markets and Economic Opportunity at Kennesaw State University. The Bagwell Center's mission is to provide a platform for an interdisciplinary study of the importance of markets and economic institutions in regard to resource allocation, entrepreneurial activity, economic prosperity, and improved human welfare. Through extracurricular outreach activities such as guest lectures, film screenings, workshops, fellowships, and reading groups, the Bagwell Center places an emphasis on educating students about the foundations of market institutions and examining the related impact of government policy in a mixed economy. For more information about the Bagwell Center and its programs, please visit coles.kennesaw.edu slash econop.
1: Thank you, I appreciate it. So we're into hour two of talking about economics here at uh, Kennesaw State. This is the economic history part, and I don't know the rules and regulations in Georgia, but there's some places where what I just did right before we started when, what's your name? Jose. Jose? Zach. Zach. Yes. Okay, all right, I apologize, I'm hard. <laughs> like, getting old is awful. <laughs> okay, so Zach comes in, says, how's everybody doing? and it sounded like a Friday morning, you know. Okay, so I turned on ACDC, thunderstruck. Get amped up, ready to rock and roll. Now that if I were to call that music therapy, then there's some sense in which in some places I might be violating the law, because I would need a license for that, to be a music therapist. This is the antithesis in some sense of what ultimately made us very, 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 very rich in the Western world today, That is the adoption of what McCloskey and I call the bourgeois deal, which says, leave me alone and I'll make you rich. So in the next few minutes, here is what we are up to. First, we're gonna say a few things about what happened. What's the big historical thing that we want to explain? Second, we're gonna talk a little bit about what didn't cause it. We're gonna talk about what didn't cause it. The thing that we're trying to explain is the huge increase in standards of living that's happened primarily in Europe and the overseas extensions thereof, and that has started spreading around the world in the last few decades, what we call the great enrichment. We'll say a few things about what didn't cause it. We'll say a few things about what did. We'll make a few comments on how to organize society, the different deals that societies have come up with for how they conduct their affairs and we might say a few things about taking candy from strangers when that's a good idea when that's a bad idea and how remarkable it is that we do it so first what happened what happened again this is the economic history talk And this is Douglas C. North, who won the Nobel Prize in 1993 for his work on economic history. And he gives us the cheery insight that economic history is a depressing tale of miscalculation leading to famine, starvation, defeat in warfare, economic stagnation and decline, and indeed the disappearance of entire civilizations. That's uplifting and cheery. And again, if you look at most of economic history, you look at most of economic history, it's horrible. It's absolutely horrible. Ever hear people talk about how they want to go back to the good old days? The good old days. Heard a preacher one time saying, "You know, uh, yeah, when I was growing up in the 50s, like you never heard about teen pregnancy? You never heard anything about drug use? You never heard anything about spousal abuse? It's like, yeah, because you were eight years old and grown-ups don't talk about those things in front of eight-year-olds. Moreover, moreover, if you look back a few centuries, or if you look back over the broad sweep of human history, for almost all of time, life has been, to borrow from Thomas Hobbes, solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. Solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. You would maybe not meet anybody outside of your little community, it was solitary. It was solitary. You were not really connected with the rest of the world. Okay. It was poor. It was poor. Adjusted for modern prices, roughly speaking. You consumed about three dollars a day, three, maybe four dollars a day, worth of finished goods and services. Now then, almost all or at least someone in the room almost certainly has spent more than that on coffee today. Imagine having what you spent on less than what you spent on coffee this morning to buy all of your food, all of your clothing, all of your shelter. Pay your rent, pay for your groceries, pay your bills, etc. It's a grinding existence. <laughs> it's a horrible existence. It is a poor existence. Life was nasty. Life was nasty, it was solitary, it was poor, it was nasty. Okay? One of the most amazing things in the world today is indoor plumbing indoor plumbing. The fact that you're not covered in germs and fecal matter all the time is again one of the major innovations, one of the major issues, one of the major things in the modern world. The fact that I can drink a bottle of water and be reasonably certain it's not filled with pathogens that are going to kill me is again one of the major 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 issues, one of the major differences between our world and the world of our ancestors. <clears throat> this morning, <clears throat> excuse me, goodness. There we go. <clears throat> um, so this morning I got up at the hotel. It was very, very comfortable and very, very nice. And I noticed this morning I got up to make coffee. It's like the most important part of any hotel is the coffee pot. And okay. I get up, I'm going to make coffee in my hotel room, and the coffee pot was dirty. Okay. And I mentioned it to the folks at the front desk. You, know, you just say, you know, the coffee pot was dirty. And not in the, like, the, hey, I'm trying to score free Bonvoy points for Marriott or whatever. But, like, you know, just something you probably want to know. I don't really care that much. But <clears throat> the thought that, the, thought that uh, the coffee pot is dirty is like some sort of, is like the worst part of my day is really, 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 really incredible. Life was solitary. Life was poor. Life was nasty. Life was brutish. Life was brutish. How likely is it that you're going to die by having your head caved in by somebody from the next tribe over who wants your resources? The answer is not very. The answer is not very. The likelihood that you die at the hands of another human being now is lower than it's been at pretty much any other point in history. Life's not nearly as brutish as it used to be. It's relatively peaceful. We get along fairly well. Now, you might think, well, no, we don't. I mean, because there's all sorts of horrible problems with the world, and indeed, you're exactly right. There are, Okay, It used to be worse. It used to be much, 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 much worse. Birmingham, uh, so Birmingham's airport is named for Fred Shuttlesworth. Uh, who was a, a pastor in Birmingham. And in fact, actually, our, our older son yesterday toured Bethel Baptist Church in Birmingham, which is where he was a pastor during the Civil Rights era. And like, if you go to the airport in Birmingham, there's a picture of Fred Shuttlesworth in a hospital bed where like people have beaten him within an inch of his life for trying to enroll, in, enroll his daughters in school. Okay. Within the lifetime of my parents, okay, things have gotten better. Okay. Kind of damns things with faint praise, but it could have been a lot worse. Life used to be short. Life used to be short. Life expectancy in the 20s, 30s. In the richest countries in the world, France, England, places like that, in 1800, life expectancy was about 40. I'm 42. I'll be 43 next month. So, by most historical standards, I'd be living on borrowed time. Okay. Now, that was driven primarily by very high infant mortality, very high child mortality, okay, so that you know, I, do, I wouldn't expect to drop dead at any moment right now, but I really wouldn't have that much time left. I really wouldn't have that much time left before I'm dead of tuberculosis or something to that effect. Now, in 2020, 2021, 2022, life expectancy in the poorest countries in the world is half again as long as it was in the richest countries in the world a couple hundred years ago. Life expectancy in a country like Nigeria is about 60. Okay. Again, a lot of this driven by big reductions in child mortality, by big reductions in infant mortality. Okay. What's happened? First, there are a lot more of us. There are a lot more of us. Okay. The world used to be very, 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 very empty. Now it's just very, very empty. Okay. There was hardly anybody for a really, really long time. And then finally, a, few millennia, a couple of millennia ago, things started to increase a tad. And then population started growing explosively during what we call the great enrichment. A lot more of us. We live a lot longer. We live a lot longer. People in Japan have life expectancy exceeding 80 years. Global life expectancy, again, is over 70. Global life expectancy is over 70. It's almost 70 in India. Okay? It's between 60 and 70 in Ethiopia. It's over 60 in South Africa. Okay? And now that if you know anything about, about India, Ethiopia, South Africa, um, these are not exactly free market paradises, one, nor for that matter are they among the richest countries in the world. And yet, and yet life expectancy has increased pretty dramatically in all of those places. Again, we consume more stuff. Output per person, our daily consumption, our daily bread. In 2011, prices in the United States is over $50,000 a year. Okay? That's an enormous, enormous, enormous amount of stuff. That's over $100 a day in roughly modern prices worth of finished goods and services. That's a lot of coffee. That's a lot of rent. That's a lot of food. That's a lot of everything. That's a lot of the kinds of things that make life, I think, worth living and life a lot less solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short than it used to be. But, one might say, these gains have come at the expense of the least of these among us. The gains have come at the expense of the least of these among us. Um, my church small group was reading a book by a guy named Eugene Peterson not terribly long ago, and, or no, a little over a year ago, I guess. And he talked about how standards of living in rich countries depend on low standards of living in not rich countries. The way he wrote it, or the way he put it, he said, for me to increase my standard of living, somebody else has to decrease theirs. Okay. I refute to be thus. Just in my lifetime. Just in my lifetime, the raw number of people living in what we define as extreme poverty has fallen. Say nothing of the fraction of the human species that is not in extreme poverty. The absolute number of people living in extreme poverty has fallen precipitously over the last several decades. There's more of us, we live a lot longer, we consume a lot more and poverty like real serious honest-to-goodness poverty Okay, I don't mean like you're poorer than other people I mean like you're poor relative to global and historical standards Okay, is diminishing and diminishing and diminishing as a fraction of the human experience in short if you're in this room you're one of the richest 5% of people in the world and you're one of the richest 1% of people who's ever walked the face of the earth that's what we want to explain how is it that we who are probably not the descendants of gods and kings, ended up able to consume more than $100 a day worth of finished goods and services. First thing I'm going to do is knock out a few hypotheses for what it allegedly was. Okay, well, it wasn't because of saving. Now, I'm going to sound like your mom or your dad or your economics professor and say you should save. You should probably save more saving is good, saving is virtuous, saving is wise. Because at some point in the future, head and shoulders, knees and toes aren't gonna work as well as they used to. You're gonna need prescription medicine. You're gonna need oxygen tanks. You're gonna need you know, assisted mobility devices and things like that, okay? We did not get rich, however, because of some sort of sudden increase in saving. Per capita income would rise a bit if we had more saving. But what we're trying to explain is a 1,600% increase in standards of living, not a few percentage points. (laughs) And moreover, in places like England, which were England was sort of the seat of the Industrial Revolution and the seat of the Great Enrichment, saving was relatively low. So saving is good. You should do more of it we need to have saving in order to have capital and production and things like that but it wasn't because of some sort of big increase in saving that we got from a world of hardly anybody to a world of almost 8 billion people from a world of three dollars a day to a world of thirty dollars a day globally and over a hundred dollars a day in places like the United States it wasn't because of free trade it wasn't because of free trade now you ask any economist in the room or ask any economist period should we have free trade they're almost certainly going to say yes paul krugman who won the nobel prize in 19 or excuse me 2008 for his work on economic geography and is sort of very much to the left of center politically has said that if there's an economist creed it would be i understand comparative advantage and i fully support free trade And the move to free trade, or to freer trade, was really, really good. Okay, Why? Because we're able to exploit comparative advantage. We're able to enjoy a finer division of labor. We're able, therefore, to increase our productivity. But once again, the move to free trade doesn't explain the whole huge thing. It explains maybe a few percentage points. Moreover, people have been trading over very, very long distances for eons without having a great enrichment. It wasn't because of a sudden move to free trade. It helped, but it only explains a little bit of what we really want to explain. Now, the, once again, much like, you should, much like what I said earlier about how you should save more, um, another question might be, well, so therefore, should, should we not have free trade with China? No, we should absolutely have free trade with China, and free trade with Canada, and free trade with everybody who wants to sell us stuff. Okay, That'll increase our incomes. We'll have higher standards of living. But free trade alone does not explain how we went from, again, $3 a day to $30 a day around the world and $150 a day in the United States. It wasn't because of railroads. It wasn't because of railroads. A lot of stories that you might hear in history, and maybe you heard this in high school, might attribute the great enrichment to some one big, huge thing. Or maybe you hear, like, American industrialization owes its, owes its origins to the iron horse, which we rode from one side of the continent to the other. And it created the steel industry and the coal industry and all these other things. And the development of railroads is what ultimately led to American prosperity in the 20th century. It's a fun story, but it's false. The economist Robert Fogel, who shared the Nobel Prize with North, um, shared it in part for some of his work on the effect of railroads on economic growth. And he found that railroads didn't really do a whole lot for us. Okay, A couple of years worth of economic growth, 5% social saving, but they didn't make the difference between industrializing and not industrializing. One of the points here, one of the points that Fogel made, is something that economists and econ students are fond of pointing out, and that's that there are substitutes everywhere for everything. There are substitutes everywhere for everything. There are a lot of ways to skin a cat. There are a lot of ways to move goods. And one substitute for moving things by rail is moving things by water. So Fogel Fogel argues that relative to canals, and existing rivers and waterways, railroads didn't really do a whole lot for us. Now then, again, they might explain a couple of percentage points, but what we're interested in is the difference between $3 a day and $30 a day, or $150 a day, something enormous, more than just a few percentage points. And you can do this for virtually every kind of great invention or great innovation that allegedly created long-run industrialization. Nice to have. Nice to have, but not decisive. It wasn't because of schooling. It wasn't because of schooling. Now here's one that's kind of controversial, because I'm a big fan of schooling. Indeed, I've devoted my life to it. Okay? It's my bread and butter, almost literally. <clears throat> but we didn't get modern economic growth because of somehow sudden increases in the number of people who went to school. Indeed, the economic historian David Mitch has argued that, if anything, Victorian Britain, well, excuse me, well, just 19th century Britain generally, might have actually overinvested in schooling relative to, uh, relative to what, was, uh, what would have been optimal, relative to what would, have, what would have maximized growth. Schooling is great. You should pay attention. You should do more of it. You should read great literature, yeah, yada, 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 okay, but schooling is not the thing that led to a great enrichment. It wasn't because of science either. Again, I love science, and science is important, and science is cool, and science matters, and science certainly helps. And indeed, there's there's probably a a stronger relationship between developments in basic science today and long-run economic growth. But if we're trying again to explain the great enrichment, science is not the thing that did it. Science is not the thing that did it. Okay. Indeed, the history of technology is such that science tends to lag behind technology. We figure out how to do something, and then we figure out how, then we figure out how it works. Okay. We figure out how to do something, and then later people come along and figure out how it works. Okay. So for example, if you go to a bar, and you order a mixed drink, okay, and you ask the bartender to explain the complicated chemistry Behind the drink, why does this taste good? Why is this pleasant? Why is this pleasing, et cetera? You might not be able to explain it. Okay? Indeed, probably can't. Do you need a degree in chemistry to be a good bartender? You don't. Do you need a, a degree in chemistry to be a barista? Again, you don't. Okay. Does David Beckham, maybe one of the greatest soccer players who ever lived, did he need to know advanced theoretical physics in order to kick a soccer ball with incredible accuracy? Again, no, he just did it, and then we figured it out. Okay? So again, science is great, science is wonderful. Science, however, does not, explain the, does not explain the great enrichment. It wasn't because of welfare. It wasn't because of welfare. Now, I, noticed, I, I noted earlier that the number of people living in extreme poverty in the world has fallen pretty dramatically. And some people might say, well, that's because of welfare. That's because of social insurance in the 20th century. If you, have, if you play the game Civilization, so Civilization II Revolution is kind of my, my time waster on my phone. One of the wonders, no, excuse me, one of the social technologies that you can research and produce is social insurance. And that allows you to produce the universal health care wonder. And there might be reasons for universal health care or things like that. OK? There might be reasons for redistribution. However, if we want to explain why the least of these among us, both historically and in the contemporary scene, have much higher incomes than our ancestors, almost all of it is due to economic growth. Almost all of it is due to economic growth. Almost none of it is due to redistribution. The economist Robert Lucas, another Nobel Prize winner, once said that uh, of everything that is sort of antithetical to good, meaningful, serious, useful economic analysis, hardly anything is more destructive than focusing on questions of distribution in the short run, rather than questions of growth over the long run. Because tiny, tiny, tiny differences in growth rates, tiny differences in growth rates, given that it compounds from year to year to year, ultimately swamp everything. Tiny differences in growth rates ultimately swamp everything. And while it may be true that redistribution might make everyone in the room look a little bit more like one another in terms of access to consumption and things like that, over the long run, Over the long run, it's economic growth that allows us to have things like climate control, that allows us to have things like jackets, that allows us to have things like air conditioning, that allows us to have things like glasses, that allows us to have things like a fairly comfortable place in which to have a discussion about the causes of economic growth over the very long run. It wasn't because of slavery. It wasn't because of slavery. And I'm using that as sort of a stand-in for exploitation very generally. Okay, there are a lot of people who argue or who claim that the reason why Europe got rich and the reason why the United States got rich was because of exploitation of various kinds, imperialism, colonialism, and slavery. The journalist ta Coates um, quoted a historian named Edward Baptist in testimony before Congress claiming that in 1836, half of US output came from slavery. Okay? And that sounds pretty bracing and that sounds like a lot, but it's wrong. The way they got that number was by double counting and triple counting and things like that. If you've taken macroeconomics or are in macroeconomics, you know that gross domestic product is the market value of all finished goods and services produced in a country in a year. Okay? If you do the math correctly, you learn that slave-produced cotton was really not that important to the American economy. It was big. It was big and there was a lot of it. But it's a mistake by an order of magnitude to claim that half of US income in 1836 was tied specifically to slavery. Moreover, okay, moreover, slavery is expensive, imperialism is expensive, colonialism is expensive. Think for just a second about what slavery is. It takes a human being creating the image of God and says, okay, look, the thing that, dis- the thing that, that distinguishes you from all the rest of creation is your mind. We're going to pretend that's not a thing. And we waste the minds and the talent of generations upon generations upon generations of people. Moreover, if we think about the British Empire, if we think about the British Empire, it made some specific people very rich. Cecil Rhodes, for example, got rich because of slavery, slavery, imperialism, colonialism. There are a lot of people in the southern United States who got really, really rich because of slavery, imperialism, colonialism. What we're not trying to explain, though, is how some specific people got rich, but what increased average standards of living for everybody? In the case of the British Empire, imperialism was a net drag on economic growth. In the case of slavery, there's a very strong argu- argument to be made that slavery was and is a net drag on economic growth. The legacy of slavery might explain inequality, or it might explain some inequalities between groups and things like that, okay? but it does not explain why the average today is so much higher than it used to be. Okay. So, Slavery, colonialism, imperialism, exploitation. Okay. This is like the way, that, the way that Neil Ferguson put it. He's a historian. He said imperialism was the least original thing Europeans did after 1492. If there's any constant over all of human history, it's been human beings being horrible to other human beings. It's been slavery, imperialism, colonialism. And if anything, it's kept us poor. It has not, in fact, made us richer. So what it was, enough of what it wasn't, what it was. Well, McCloskey and I argue that it was the adoption of what we call the bourgeois deal. Leave me alone and I'll make you rich. Basically, it was a change in social institutions, a change in political institutions, a change in social institutions, a change in cultural institutions. It was first liberty. Liberty, the right to try new things. The right to try new things, the right to innovate without having to ask anybody's permission. Okay. Now then, liberty, of course, has been uh, is a bit of a delicate flower in a certain sense, and it's not been universal, and there are a lot of restrictions on it today, but we got enough of it that people started innovating more. Okay, we got enough of it. The people started innovating more. They could try new things. They could take on a new trade without being a member of the guild. Say? If you look at medieval European history, um, the guilds throttled the labor market. And, one, and some people might argue well, the reason you want guilds is because you want to make sure that quality, uh, you want to make sure that you have quality control. Okay, that might be an argument. But the major function of the guilds was to exclude people from their work and prevent people from competing with them. Okay? So for example, most of the medieval European guilds excluded women. Okay. And that ultimately, or that was good perhaps in the short run for the members of the guilds who earn more money, which is bad for long-run economic growth. Okay. Shaking that off just a little bit helped to, create long, helped to create the modern world. We've seen this in China specifically. Okay. The greatest growth miracle in history has been China over about the last 50 years. Okay. The largest mass migration out of extreme poverty in history has happened in China over the last several decades. And it's happened in part because the Chinese government has gone from being very, very, very repressive to just being very, very repressive. Okay. Imagine what would happen. Imagine what would happen if, if the Chinese had Western-style economic freedom. It would be an incredible, incredible, incredible world to live in. It happened because of dignity. It happened because of dignity. Dignity specifically for innovators and entrepreneurs, for people who came up with new stuff. In a lot of historical contexts, the word innovation meant heresy. To introduce innovations in the reading of Scripture. To dissent from orthodoxy to come up with ways of doing things that might not be holy. Okay, Well, in the 18th century, give or take, people started running mad after innovation, mad after trying new things, mad after coming up with new ways to do stuff, mad after coming up with new products. In the last lecture, I spent some time talking about Walmart and talking about developments in retail. And it was first the liberty of people like Saul Price and Sam Walton to try new ways of selling goods and then second the dignity that comes with the fact that society embraced people who did such things instead of rejecting them we look up to and admire historically people like Saul Price and Sam Walton for the work that they did changing the world changing the world of retail the economist Don Boudreau refers to what he calls the honor tax And the honor tax basically says, how much do people hate you for doing something? It acts like a tax on that activity. Well, society started hating people less for inventing new tools, inventing new machines, coming up with new stuff. And that kind of set us off to the races. So economic liberty, social dignity for entrepreneurs, the adoption, once again, of what we call the bourgeois deal. And the bourgeois deal is one deal among several. Several different ways that we might think about organizing society. We have what we call the blue blood deal, the Bolshevik deal, the Bismarck deal, the bureaucratic deal, and the bourgeois deal. Let's say a few things about each of these. First, the blue blood deal. If you've seen seen Monty Python and the quest for the Holy Grail. The aristocratic deal or the aristocratic blue blood deal basically says, if you imagine life, if you imagine that the the world is sort of like a, a play occurring in a few acts, in the first act, you bow and you curtsy when I tell you to bow and curtsy. You go to war when I tell you to go to war. You honor me as Arthur, king of the Britons, because I'm Arthur, king of the Britons, and somehow that makes me better than you. Shut up and quit talking about that. Honor me, an aristocrat, a blue blood. Who by dint of birth is again somehow better than you. Okay? And if you're lucky, by the time all's said and done, I won't have slaughtered you. This is not exactly a recipe for innovation and success. Okay? A world in which we elevate Arthur King of the Britons over everybody else, let him tell everybody else what to do, fight wars for his glory and his honor. Okay. Is not going to be a world that's conducive to economic growth. Moreover, it's not going to be a world, it's not going to be a world that embraces a whole lot in the way of real serious innovation, specifically innovation in goods and services available to the least of these among us or available to the peasants and the common folk. Because Arthur, King of the Britons, under the Blue Blood Deal, is the only one who really matters. The Bolshevik deal. The Bolshevik deal, formulated by Vladimir Lenin and others who were the um, people who executed executed the Russian Revolution, uh, then also executed an enormous number of human beings uh, shortly thereafter, said, you know what? The aristocrats are terrible. So is the bourgeoisie. What you need to do is you need to place your faith in the party. Collectivize the means of production. Socialize the means of production. Let's all be socialist. so that the means of production are commonly owned. They're owned by the working people. Now, the representatives of the working people are the party. And the members of the party are never wrong. If you do this, if you allow us to socialize the means of production and do exactly what we tell you and think exactly what we tell you to think and don't make any noise about it, then maybe we won't have liquidated you in a gulag by the time all is said and done. The Bolshevik deal. I'm not going to mince words on this. The Bolshevik deal adopted in the 20th century in the former Soviet Union in Eastern Europe, in China, created the greatest humanitarian disaster the world has ever seen. I'll say that again. Adopting the Bolshevik deal created the greatest humanitarian disaster that the world has ever seen. Millions and millions and millions and millions of people either, one, slaughtered, or two, starved largely as a result no excuse me not largely but exclusively as a result of the ideas underlying the Bolshevik deal. Why not socialism? Because we tried it and it failed. The Bolshevik deal again not a recipe for rising standards of living. Turns out that you can't just rewrite human nature and it turns out that collectivizing and socializing the means of production tends not to lead to a whole lot of innovation or a whole lot Of efficiency. There's the deal offered by Otto von Bismarck in Germany, the Bismarckian deal, which kind of splits the two to a certain extent, and Bismarck says, you know what, Um, the bourgeoisie they're exploiting you and we don't want inequality and these innovators are like bad dudes, but then also we don't want complete totalitarian communism or socialism or anything like that. So how about this, you recognize that the state The state is basically the lifeblood of your being. It's the essence of all that makes your life worth living. It will take care of you from cradle to grave. Pay your taxes. Lots and lots and lots and lots of taxes. And honor the government officials. And then by the end of the day, we'll have redistributed a bunch of income and the bourgeoisie and the Bolsheviks will not have taken advantage of you. Well, maybe there might be, again, like I said earlier, there might be a bit of an argument for redistribution on at least some margins. But once again, this is not exactly a deal that embraces a whole lot in the way of innovation. This is not a deal that embraces betterment. It's not a deal that embraces long-run change. It might be good for stability, maybe. But again, it's not really good for long-run economic development. The bureaucratic deal is the fourth of the deals, the fourth of the ways that we can think about organizing society. And this is basically innovation by permission. Innovation by permission. You can try that, as long as you've got a permit for it. The people who are doing the planning, the people who are making the policy, or people who have master's degrees in public policy, and stuff like that, experts ruled by experts who, can, who decide what is and what is not permissible, who decide whether or not you can, in fact, come up with a new way to move people from one place to another using an app on a smartphone, or whether or not you can open a new restaurant, or whether you can try to come up with a new and more interesting cuisine. We have some personal experience with this. Several years ago, my, my wife started making kimchi, which is a Korean fermented cabbage. And it's spicy and delicious. And she thought, you know what, I could sell this stuff. And so she started trying to sell kimchi, okay? <clears throat> and so she went doing all the stuff she needed to, do to get a business license. She had to go to the health department and get the health department's approval. She goes to the health department and says, hey, I want to make kimchi. They said, what's kimchi? I said, wait, are you serious? He's like, so no, no, we, we have no idea what this product is. She said, well, it's fermented. I said, oh, so you mean like beer? No, no, it's not beer. Uh, so is it like pickles? No, no said, OK, well, you need to go out of Montgomery, and like, eventually this whole bunch of runarounds and things like that, and, and my wife gave up on it. Okay? The, bureaucratic deal, the bureaucratic deal is one that embraces innovation, but only innovation that we understand and approve of. Okay? And the bureaucratic deal is a tax on innovation, a tax on economic growth. And if there's anything that's going to strangle prosperity in the 21st century, it's probably going to be this. By comparison, the bourgeois deal. The bourgeois deal says, again, leave me alone and I'll make you rich. Honor me or at least don't hate me too much for showing up on time, for paying my bills, for coming up with new stuff. Don't expect me to ask your permission to open a store in the county seat in rural Arkansas or rural Missouri or wherever because it's my money on the line. Okay. Let me take a risk. Let me take a risk. If I fail, then I reluctantly agree to accept the losses. Okay. Though you might notice that this is kind of unstable, because one thing that's really, really easy to do, or at least fun to do politically, is to try to get other people to pay for your stuff. Okay. But it says, you know, let me try. If I fail, that's on me. If I succeed, let me keep the profits. Let me keep the profits to try even more new things. When all is said and done, I will have gotten very, very rich. And Sam Walton at one point was the richest man in the world. I believe now if you combine the the net worths of his heirs, the Walton heirs would be richer than Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk or Bill Gates. But at the end of the day, I will have made you rich. I will have made you rich. And indeed, he did. And they did. And if the economist William Nordhaus is correct, sure, Elon Musk made a lot of money. Jeff Bezos made a lot of money. Sam Walton made a lot of money. But 98% of the value of innovation has accrued to the rest of us in the form of consumer surplus, in the form of gains from trade. Almost the entire benefit of innovation over the last several centuries has accrued to you and accrued to me. Intention. This is interesting. Intention doesn't really matter that much. Intention doesn't really matter that much. How do you get somebody to cooperate with you? How do you get somebody to provide you with food, with clothing, with shelter? Well, you find a way to make their life better. The norms and the rules that work really, really well in a small setting in a family They don't scale up very well because people. Once you get past a couple of dozen folks, maybe you can't know people that well. Okay. Okay. I know my children. I know my children very, very well. I know their tastes. I know their preferences. I know more or less what makes them tick. Our oldest is 13 now, so it's a little bit less of that. But nonetheless, I know my children and I care about my children in a way that you don't and probably can't. It is presumptuous. It's presumptuous for me to expect you to care about my kids the way that I do, for you to prioritize taking care of them the way that I do, and for you to intend their good the same way you intend your own or the good of your own children, your own family. The prosperity we have is an unintended consequence, an unintended consequence of the adoption of the bourgeois deal As Adam Smith put it, he wrote, by preferring the support of domestic to that of foreign industry, a person intends only his own security, and by directing that industry in such a manner as its produce may be of the greatest value, he intends only his own gain, and he is in this, as in many other cases, led by an invisible hand to promote an end which was no part of his intention. Nor is it always the worse for the society that it was no part of it. By pursuing his own interest, he frequently promotes that of the society more effectually than when he really intends to promote it. Which brings us to strangers with candy. If you've eaten candy recently, it was made by a stranger. So you're drinking a, a monster energy drink. Okay. Do you know who made it? No. no. Coke? Coke? I don't know. <laughs> no, I mean like the specific people. Oh, no, I don't care. Okay. Oh, you don't know. You don't care. OK, well, why are you drinking the energy drink? To wake up, okay. Right. This isn't doing it, no, I'm kidding. All <clears throat> right. He may not know the people, may not know the people who produce the energy drink, and yet he bought the energy drink from strangers. In a commercial society, we have incentives to take care of strangers because those strangers take care of us. The people at the monster energy drink place provide us with energy drinks. Because we provide them with with what they want, which is the means, again, to take care of the people and the
0: causes that matter to them. Great. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Bagwell Center podcast. For more content like this, please be sure to subscribe. And for more information about the Bagwell Center and its programs, please visit us online at coleskennesawedu slash econop.